Grace Fellowship, it's good to be with you this morning. Good morning, how are you? Good. Uh, yeah, as Dan mentioned, this is a part of a kickoff to this series on how to be good neighbors and the neighbors that Jesus intends us to be here in State College. And so very pleased to uh, receive this invitation uh, to join you again. And I was praying and, and meeting with uh, some of the other pastors this past Thursday. And I, I can say there is a real excitement and anticipation for what God is going to be doing through Gosh, probably about a dozen churches as we, uh, everybody's preaching on this same message uh, over the coming weeks and uh, excited to see what God does. Would I ask for your prayers for us? Wellspring Church will be launching uh, our, our, we're calling a soft launch on Easter Sunday and we're gearing up for that and excited to join what God is already doing in this community. So appreciate your prayers for the advance of the kingdom in State College and, and on campus. I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 10. We're going to be looking at, uh, starting in verse 25. This, along with maybe the parable of the prodigal son, is Jesus' most famous parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's become so familiar that it, people who have no knowledge of the Bible even know what you mean when you say Good Samaritan. Oh, that's someone who comes along and helps somebody in need, right? We even have Good Samaritan laws and things like that for helping someone on the side of the road or someone who's had a problem. But I want us to maybe get back, get a little distance from our familiarity to hear again what Jesus was saying in this original story, in this original encounter, and to maybe feel even some of the offense that Jesus was bringing out, and some of the shock and even the scandal that the man who heard this original story would have felt. So read with me. I think what we're going to do is we're going to to read the conversation between Jesus and this man and then, and we'll talk about that for a bit, and then we'll read the parable itself. So verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He, being Jesus, said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Let's stop there for a moment. If if you've ever watched the State of the Union addresses, you'll know that at some point the president will often uh, stop what he's saying and point up to the balcony. And there, invariably seated, usually next to the first lady, is a person or several persons. This is somebody that the president wants to draw attention to, right? This is someone who, for whatever reason, is is someone who uh, he wants to highlight. Well, the original, that wasn't always a tradition. That actually started with President Reagan. And uh, it started with actually a guy named Lenny Skutnik. That maybe doesn't roll off the tongue, but Lenny Skutnik turned out to be a pretty extraordinary person. See, uh, at some point in Reagan's presidency, um, Lenny Skutnik was walking down the street and a flight, a, an airplane, a Florida Air Florida Flight 90, crashed into the Potomac River. Had ice on its wings, wasn't able to achieve you know, full liftoff. It had just taken off from Washington and it developed uh, the ice on its wings, brought it down right as it was trying to clear Washington's 14th Street Bridge. P- uh, passengers were trying to escape. It was in the middle of winter, so the river, the Potomac, was icy. Soon a helicopter was on the scene trying to pull people out of that river, but it could only pull one person at a time. 
And so there were people struggling. And there was one woman in the water who uh, was having increasing difficulty. She couldn't grab a hold of the ladder when they dropped it down because her arms were so cold. And it looked like she was gonna, not going to make it. Everyone else behind the barricade uh, was shouting encouragement to her. People are starting to freak out. Lenny Skutnik, who had just been walking to work, he broke through the police barricade. He dove into the river, risking his own life, and he pulled that lady to safety. A woman who otherwise would surely have drowned. Reagan highlighted him during the State of the Union address. He called him a hero. You know what our Lord Jesus would have called him? A good neighbor. A good neighbor. Someone who was caring for their, for their neighbor. The story that we're going to read today begins with a lawyer asking a good question, but with a not-so-good motive. And then eventually he's going to ask, who is my neighbor? This is a good question, because if we're supposed to love our neighbors, knowing who they are is important. But his motive, as we will see, is uh, he was an expert in the law, and he was trying to test Jesus. In fact, he was trying to trap Jesus. He was trying to trap him. But Jesus, as he so often does, I love how he does this, he sets up a test or even a trap in return. But as Tim Keller says, Jesus is laying his own trap for this man, but it is a trap of love. So let's see how Jesus does this. And But as we do that, I want us to let this also speak to us, because this is a trap, this is a test for us in some ways. We'll see this morning that love for our neighbors is a test of the genuineness of our faith. How we love our neighbors is a test of the reality of our faith. You know that. This is the test that Jesus holds up to this man. This is the test that he holds up to us. And so the question for us is, if this is a test, do I pass it? Do I pass this test? Friends, love for our neighbors is not optional, but it's an inevitable sign of the reality of our faith. Did you know that Proverbs says that to ignore the needs of a poor man is to sin against the Lord? Elsewhere in Matthew 25, Jesus makes clear that if we ignore the needs of the poor and needy, it's like we're refusing Jesus Himself. And in James chapter 2, James says this, For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And then He says this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed, and lacking in daily food. And one of you says to him, Go in peace. Be warmed and well fed without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So, also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Friends, genuine faith must be worked out in genuine love and care and meeting the real material, physical needs of those around us. James says, you say you have faith, but it doesn't get worked out in love for people around you in need, then you don't have real faith. This is the test that Jesus holds up to us here. He holds up to this man and to us as well. God's love for us must overflow into love for our neighbors. Now listen, as we hear this passage, we, this isn't just a test, but it is also guidance. It is also Jesus showing us how to live out this call to love our neighbors. In fact, if we hear what he's saying here, we will know the joy of keeping God's commands. We will have the joy of meeting the real needs of people around us. And I believe seeing more people 
in heaven as we love our neighbors well. But if we fail this test, we will leave real people hurting and in need. And we will bring shame on Christ in the church. So let's look at what Jesus has for us here. How Jesus makes possible the joy-giving, priority-changing, God-honoring love of our neighbors. Ready? All right. So, what must I do? Before we get into the parable itself, it's worth spending time on this conversation that precedes it. This man approaches Jesus and he says, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I want you to think about even how he phrases that question. Jesus, what do I have to do? Tell me the hoops I have to jump through. Tell me the requirements I have to keep. Give me the checklist, Jesus. Show me what I have to do so that I can, so that I can do it. Because I'm ready to do it. Because I know my stuff. He's a lawyer, which means he's a religious expert. He's a teacher of the law. He is grounded in all of this stuff. He, Jesus, help me know what it is I have to do. Now, for some of us, especially if you've been around the church for a while, you think, Jesus, he just says, what do I have to do to receive eternal life? Jesus, why don't you, don't you know the answer? I mean, how many of us, if someone came up to us, we'd say, hey, that's a softball question right there. I know exactly what to do. I'm going to pull out my gospel tract, or these days, I'm pull out an app that can share the gospel. I'll pull out my napkin. I'll draw some bridges. I'll draw some circles, whatever your method is. I know how to answer that question. And why doesn't Jesus just say, receive me as your personal Lord and Savior? Invite me into your heart. Why doesn't Jesus do that? That's how we think we're supposed to answer that question. Why doesn't he do that? And by the way, those aren't bad answers, but it's striking to me that Jesus doesn't simply launch into a standard gospel presentation. Instead, as he so often does, he responds with questions. He says, how do you read the law? You know what he's doing here. Instead of just giving a canned presentation, he's actually drawing out this man's heart. He is drawing out what are his real beliefs. And this man, we see, he actually answers very well. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. This echoes uh, Deuteronomy 6.5, Leviticus 19.18. It was a commonly accepted summary of what the entire law was about. We know this is a good answer because Jesus, one, he says it's a good answer here. And in Matthew 22, Jesus answers in very much the same way when someone asks him that question. So Jesus is drawing this out. And he's doing that because he sees that this man is testing Jesus to see if Jesus takes the law of God seriously. See, as one of the religious establishment, he's heard things about Jesus. He's heard This guy, Jesus, he's all about grace and forgiveness. He even eats with sinners. even hangs out with the unclean, the dirty, the untouchable, the notorious, the infamous. He spends his time with those people. Doesn't he take God's law seriously? Doesn't he take holiness seriously? And Jesus says, I take it seriously, but do you? And so in response to his question, Jesus says, Do this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do this and you will live. He is in effect saying, I take the law of God seriously, but do you? Because now he's saying, just go do it. Go do the law of God and you will live. Because what does Jesus know? What does he want this man to know? That if you look at the law of God, not 
not only what it says, but what's underneath it. If you really look at it, you will see that we cannot be accepted by God because we have, by, by our own merits, by our own work. There is no hope for any of us to just go do the law of God perfectly. And if we don't keep the law of God perfectly, we will not have eternal life. We will die. We will be separated from Him. The law of God, friends, rightly understood, doesn't just modify a couple behaviors. It reveals our hearts. And Jesus is drawing out from this man, listen, if you look at the perfect standards of the law, you should quickly come to the end of yourself and realize, I can't just do it. Now Jesus is inviting a response from this man. And the response, let's imagine another way that this lawyer could have responded. He could have responded by saying this, just do it. Just do it and I will live. The law of God perfectly? He said, he could have said, teacher, there is no hope for me to do that. Teacher, there is no way that I can perfectly love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Teacher, there is no hope for me if that's what my hope is in. Teacher, clearly no one can reach eternal life through just working harder. Teacher, clearly no one is righteous then before God. No one can have eternal life. What if he had responded that way? And then Jesus would have said, you are right, my son. That's exactly right. Only through God's mercy to you can you have life. Only when you see how poor and needy and sinful you really are. Only when you despair of your own efforts. Only when you rest not in what you can do, but what God has done on your behalf. Then you will have eternal life. And then He would have invited this man to believe in Him. And to place his faith in Him. Because the Bible says, Old and New Testament, the righteous will live by faith. The Gospel, friends, is that we are made righteous. We are justified not by what we have done, but by resting in what God has done for us. The righteous will live by faith. But we see this man, he's got too much invested. See, he's got reputation. He's got educational accomplishments. He has status. He is, after all, an expert in the law. He's got way too much invested to say, I'm, I'm going to throw that out and throw myself as a poor and needy person in need of mercy at God. Instead, how does he respond? Instead of flinging himself at the feet of Jesus and crying out in faith, as so many of those sinners did, he doubles down. And he says, he actually says, well, it says he wanted to justify himself. He wanted to make himself righteous, so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Again, a good question, but with poor motives. And you feel his discomfort here, don't you? I mean, he came trying to trap Jesus, and now he's feeling the trap. He's feeling under the microscope. He is not comfortable at this moment. He is feeling his own uh, sinfulness exposed. Because on one hand, he's feeling how high the demands are that Jesus is holding out. But he also doesn't want to let go of everything that he's attained. And so he asks this question, well, okay, Jesus, I, I get it. I need to love my neighbor. Right? That's important. I get it. Love other people. We should be nice. We should be good. By the way, the dominant worldview we would say in, in, in our world today is be a good person. 
be a nice person. Be kind to other people, right? Now, you, you ask people today, okay, well, why should you do that? Well, just because, right? But you and I, maybe some of us in here, but certainly many of our neighbors would say, how should, what should we do? How should we live? Be a nice person. Be a good person. Now, he feels that. But he also feels that Jesus has put the bar, like, really, really high. And so what he's doing is he's looking for the loophole. He's looking for the limits. He's saying, but Jesus, who is my neighbor? Because surely you can't mean I'm supposed to love everybody. Like, let's be reasonable here, Jesus. I'm a teacher of the law. You're a teacher of the law. We know there's limits here. Show me where the limits are. Who is, who is my neighbor, really? Who is my neighbor, really? Jesus doesn't really give him the out, does he? In fact, what he does is he's telling, he goes on to tell a story. But he's trying to bring this proud, knowledgeable, religious person to the end of himself to see that he cannot make himself righteous. He can't justify himself. And before we move on to this story, we see that Jesus has now turned the tables, flipped it on him, applied this test to this religious leader who was trying to trap him. But let's not move on without also applying this test to ourselves. Even those of us who would know all the ways that you're supposed to talk about the gospel, and yes, you know, we're saved by grace through faith and not from our own. Let me ask you this. Are you still trying to implicitly or functionally earn God's acceptance through your performance? Let me ask you, when do you base your standing with God on how you've done lately? Do you base on, well, let me, how many times did I do my quiet time this past week? Or whatever metric that you would want to come up with. And Jesus says, apply this test to yourself. Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? 24-7. Every part of you. Every aspect of you. Total devotion to God in every way. Are you totally 110% devoted to Him? Now, even if you would say, I think I am. Let's talk about how you love your neighbor. Do you love your neighbor with all the urgency, all the speed, all the eagerness, all the energy, all the creativity, all the joy with which you also seek to meet your own needs, with which you love yourself? Friends, if we're paying attention at all, an honest answer would reveal that we cannot justify ourselves. We don't meet those standards. We do not love the Lord our God with total devotion. We don't love our neighbors as we love ourselves. In fact, we often see examples that we are far, far from that. And so this test is also meant to be applied to us. That if you're trying to justify yourself through your good works, you have failed. And that we too must live and walk by faith. But what's interesting here is Jesus says, listen, doing good is not what saves you. But he also doesn't say that we can be, that we can just throw out doing good. He doesn't say it's irrelevant. In fact, he goes on to tell this story that, uh, to, to demonstrate that we cannot throw out the need to love our neighbors. So continue with me here. The man asks, who is my neighbor? In verse 30, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. 
Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Now, Jesus is painting a pretty vivid picture here because he wants us to understand and feel what's happening. A little bit about the context here. To go from Jerusalem to Jericho was a journey of 17 miles. And it was a rapid descent from 2,500 feet above sea level to 800 feet below sea level. It was rocky. It was deserted. It was rough terrain. There was lots of places for robbers to hide out. Think about uh, you know, the, uh, the sand people and the Tusken Raiders who ambushed Luke and the droids in Star Wars. That's the picture that I, we could draw here. That was for you, Caleb. Um, so, this is, a, this is a rough place. This is a dangerous place. In fact, the ancient historian Josephus noted that people making this journey would frequently travel with weapons and, and people to protect them because it was so notorious. So the priest and the Levite come along. And to the teacher of the law, these are the people that we would presume would be the heroes of the story. These are supposed to be the Lenny Skutniks. These are supposed to be the people who risk their own uh, welfare to help this obviously needy person. And they don't do it. And so already we can feel the offense that this lawyer is feeling. And if we're paying attention, perhaps we will feel some offense too. As uh, Zach Eswan, author, points out, The priest and the Levite, they walked by, but their sin was not a sin of commission. It was a sin of omission. It was a sin of what they failed to do. They left this broken man by the side of the road because it didn't fall into their official duties of the day. I mean, they're they're off to make sacrifices. They're off to go and do important work at the temple. They're off to lead God's people in worship. It's not on their job description. To stop, and in fact, many people have pointed this out. Were they to stop and help this person, it might keep them from doing their job. They might lose a lot of time. They might lose a lot of, of their resources. They might be ambushed themselves. If this man, in fact, turns out to be dead, they will they will be rendered unclean and be unable to worship at the temple, lead God's people in worship, because if you touch a dead body, you're unclean for a few days. So this, this, is, this becomes not, in, not only something a little bit dangerous, a little bit messy, a little bit inconvenient, but it doesn't allow them to do what they believe their job is. They had all kinds of reasons for avoiding him. And that's why Jesus throws in this detail that they actually crossed to the other side of the road. Not even going up near him, but just saying, I'm not going to touch that one. I'm not even going to be getting myself near that because that is way too messy, way too complicated. And... You know, maybe they had finished everything they were supposed to do that day. If somebody asked them about this man, they could say, well, I didn't do that to him. Not my problem. Perhaps they didn't tend to him because no one was watching. 
Maybe they were people used to performing religious functions for many people to see. But without an audience, it was less compelling to serve someone in such a, in such a need and in such a risky place. Maybe they thought he didn't matter. Maybe they thought it was his fault. Maybe they were conservatives and thought he should pick himself up by his own bootstraps. Maybe they were liberals and thought the government should really have a program to help this man. But what they did not do is stop and help this poor and dying man. Now, his audience, Jesus' audience here, feels Jesus testing them. And perhaps we should feel the same test. Because the priest is the religious professional, like me and like some of you. The Levite is an actively engaged lay leader in his congregation, like many of you. In other words, Jesus is telling this story with people like us in his sights. And one thing he is asking us is, are we too busy doing stuff for God, serving on teams and serving on committees and going to meetings and being part of ministries to do the things that he says we must be doing? Friends, the religious leaders in this story had no concept of love for neighbor when they were off duty. And in their busyness to do stuff for God, they left a hurting and dying person in need. They were not pleasing the very God that they were going off to lead others in worship of. That is a scary place to be. And it sure sounds to me like through this story that Jesus is saying that neighbor love is even more important than religious observance. That the sacrifice that these this priest and the Levite should have offered was the sacrifice of their time and their energy and their resources to help save a life. Even if that meant that they didn't get to the temple to offer the next sacrifice of the ox or the goat or the lamb on the altar. James says this in chapter 1 of his letter. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Religion, which is not necessarily a bad word, friends, religion that God accepts as pure and faultless is to care for the needs of the people right in front of you. The priest and the Levite flunked this test. They flunked this test. And how about you? Do you pass this test? Do you pass the test of one who loves your neighbor? Well, as that question is settling in the minds of those who hear it, Jesus picks an unlikely hero. To a good law-abiding Jew, there was no such thing as a good Samaritan. These were half-breeds. They were traitors. They were not people that you would even regard as a neighbor, let alone someone you would love. A Samaritan was only a target of hatred and reproach. He is other. He is them. To tell this story today in some corners of the church, Jesus might have made his hero the good homosexual Muslim illegal immigrant. You can laugh about that. (laughs) Jesus wants us to feel that showing mercy and love for neighbor knows no racial or ethnic or national or even religious limits. Mercy must be shown to those in need. We see the Samaritan meets his needs in very tangible ways, coming to him, binding up his wounds, loading him on his donkey, taking him to an inn, and giving him two denarii. Now, Daryl Bach, a commentator, tells us that the going rate for an inn is one-twelfth of a denarii, which was a day's wages. He sets this guy up for 24 days of lodging and care. And he says, and if he needs more, I'll pay it. Three and a half weeks. That's very generous. 
That's very caring. And think about the lost time, the mess he has to deal with, the loss of money, the personal risk. This Samaritan doesn't even know if this guy will remember him or thank him for it, but he does it anyway. And mercy is the radical and generous and sacrificial meeting of needs. Now, I know what many of us say. We say, if I'm supposed to love my neighbor, where do I start? Who is my neighbor? Is this everybody? That's a little overwhelming, right? Have you ever felt stuck there? Like, Jesus, I want to love my neighbor, but I don't know where to start. It just seems like the needs around me are infinite. They're, they're endless. Many of us feel a vague sense of guilt about this. This parable, I believe Jesus is saying, start with what is right in front of you. Start with the needs that are immediately pressing right in front of you. Now, some of you may say, you know what, State College is a pretty nice community. We don't have, like, dying people on the side of the road. Now, when I pastored in Philadelphia, there was all kinds of ministry that we had, like, to the homeless population. We have some homeless folks in State College. Those are more obvious in a place like Philadelphia. In fact, we have, a hard, we have an easier time understanding how to meet needs in places where we tend to send people on missions trips. Right? We go inner cities, and we go, like, third world countries. And it's very obvious there. Where are the needs in a place like State College? If we're supposed to start with, with what's in front of us, where are the needs? You know what I would... Let me just point this out. Many people have pointed out in our country and in our community here that there's an epidemic of loneliness. That we are together with people all the time and we're connected with people all the time. And, you know, I have like thousands of friends and yet everyone's together and we're all alone. We're very lonely. And there are people all around us who are extremely lonely. And the Lord says uh, through the psalmist in Psalm 25, Turn to me and be gracious to me because I am lonely and afflicted. Friends, there are people around you who are crying out, I am lonely and afflicted, and you are the means by which God wants to turn to them. Widows are certainly a category of that. Children who need foster care are certainly a category of that. You know what? Many college students, including many international, you know, many international students never even see the inside of an American home. That's a, that's a failure on the part of the church. Friends, what if God wants to use us, the church, to turn to the lonely and the afflicted who are around us? That is one area of need that we often miss. Now, I want to share with you, just as I wrap up here, let me share with you a few things that we can do to be the good neighbors that Jesus would call us to do. What does it look like? What does it mean to be these good neighbors? He eventually tells us, man, go and do likewise. And let me give you some categories for that. The last, the least, the lonely, the lost, and the local. The last are those who are less privileged in our society, racially, ethnically, socioeconomically. There are those who frequently end up at the end of the line when it comes to what society wants to hand out. For those of us who are more used to opportunity and privilege, education, advancement, wealth. We have a hard time seeing that. But Jesus is constantly pushing us to the fringes to look at those who don't have as much as we have and to offer kindness and grace to them. Not only the last, but the least. The Bible continually points out the needs of the orphan, the widow, the stranger, the poor among us. I mentioned the lonely. The elderly are often lonely. You know, when I was working with uh, folks at Calvary, and they started a, 
they started a ministry to some of the like the residential nursing home communities. And they jokingly, I don't know if I should say this, but they jokingly called it the Old Lonely People's Club. Because sometimes they would, they, you know, they would start card games and they would bring meals and they would drive people to stuff. But what they found people needed more than anything was someone to talk to. And they would get phone calls from some of their elderly friends. And there wasn't anything that they wanted except they just wanted someone to talk to. And it became this really tremendous ministry of just befriending someone. Friends, there are people all around us, not only the elderly, but international students need friends. You know who often, you know who often ends up lonely and they don't even realize it until it happens? The men in their 50s. Men get to middle age. They've done a lot with their career. They get the kids you know, out the door. They're empty nests. And men wake up and realize, I don't have any friends. Now, the church is one of the best places for men to have friends. But a lot of times men end up burned out, jaded, cynical, not excited about church, the kingdom of God, or anything because they've completely isolated themselves. So reach out to those 50-year-old men in your midst. They need friends too. And friends, the least, the last, the least, the lonely, and the lost. It is great to meet people's material needs, but we also must meet their spiritual needs, right? We must be people who share the good news. What good is it some, for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? What good is it if we provide some bandages and some food and, and they never hear about the bread of life? which lasts forever. You might be the person that God is bringing into their lives to share the good news of Jesus so that they can have eternal life. And where do we start? We start locally. One of the things that uh, is encouraged in this book, The Art of Neighboring, and I want to encourage you to do this now as as we conclude. Take a a piece of paper. I want you to draw like a tic-tac-toe board. Okay, So two lines down, two lines across. There should be nine squares in that. In the middle of this board, now I'm just going to get you started, but this is something I'd encourage you to do later. In the middle of that board, draw a little picture. That's, that's of your house. That's your house, okay? Now here's what I would like you to do. There should be eight squares around that. And I want you to spend some time this week and share this with other people. The eight houses, the eight homes that are immediately situated around you. If you're in a if you're in a dorm, if you're in apartments, just do the apartments or the you know the rooms nearby, okay? Eight homes, eight eight, eight units, eight uh, you know apartments, whatever it is around you. And I want you to write three things in there. And this this might actually take a little bit of time, and it, I'm warning you, it'll probably be a little bit humbling because we got to start locally, and Jesus is concerned about our immediate neighbors. So start with names. So the first thing you're going to write is the names. If you know last names of your immediate neighbors, that's great. If you only know first names, that's fine. Then the second thing you're going to write is, what do you know about them? And not just like, that's the guy who drives the yellow Corvette and you know he only pulls out of the garage and I never talk to him, right? That's what Dan was talking about. Like, Man, so it's, it's hard to get to know some of these folks because you never actually see them, especially when the weather's colder, right? But what else do you know? Do you know where they work? You know what they do? Are they are they married? Are they living together? Do they have kids? Are their kids grown? Right? What do you, and then when you really get to know them, what are their hopes? What are their dreams? What are their desires? What do they aspire to? What's their spiritual background? What's their what's their story? Are they connected to it? You might find hey, there's there's actually more Christians in my neighborhood than I thought. Or you might find some people who are very 
very hostile, very angry about it. Or you might find people who are very open, but you don't know until you talk to them. And so the challenge that I believe the whole city church is taking is to take that grid and just say, what if each one of us took responsibility for the eight immediate households around all of us? And if we would do that, if we would take the time to do that, what might we see? Friends, I want you to imagine a a church. Imagine that we pass this test. Imagine that we pass this test of whether our faith is real and we are loving our neighbors. What would State College look like? What would it look like for this place to be, uh, for no lonely people to exist in State College because the church is loving our neighbors so well? What would it look like for no obvious material needs to be in front of us because we have been so proactive in meeting them? Can you imagine the pleasure of meeting these real needs on earth so that we have more friends in heaven with us? Isn't that something we should long for? Isn't that something that we should pray for and work for? Friends, this isn't just a someday thing. This is not a vague thing. This is something very specific that we can do to love the neighbors around us. If we do this without the Gospel, it will be a dream. But when we do it with the love that God has shown to us, we love with joy and we love with power that Jesus provides. So we've been loved well by our Savior. Let's love our neighbors well. Amen? Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank You that You are the One who has loved us in our distress. You are the One who has reached down and at great personal cost to Yourself, You reached down and You loved us. And You pulled us out of our desperate situation where we were dead in our sins. And You brought us to life. So Jesus, you're you're not asking us to do anything that you haven't done. In fact, what you're asking is not even close to what you've done for us in the Gospel. So would we be people who love well? Would we pass this test of whether our faith is genuine? Would we love the neighbors around us, starting with those immediately in our vicinity? And we pray that you would make those of us here and the churches of State College people who love our neighbors well for your glory, for our joy, and for the eternal benefit of those around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.